I think it's my turn. Is that right? Okay. I'm not singing. But I will direct your attention to Jude while I hook up all the machines here. The book of Jude, that little bitty bitty book, just before the book of Revelation, powerful, powerful little bitty book. When I was preparing these notes for today, I planned to have two parts to the service, to the sermon, the two-part sermon. I said, hey, that's pretty cool. And then I realized that that was too much. So I'm down to one part. And then I realized after thinking this through and rehearsing it, I like to think it through in the mornings on Sunday especially, just to redo my mind, and I realized I think it's only going to be half of a part. And uh, so, <laughs> brace yourself, Sid, it might be a while. Uh, half of a part. Okay, Jude verse 4. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, Ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. How can you cover all that in one sermon? There's just so much here. We're going to work on it, especially the last two phrases uh, today. But let's talk to the Lord first. Heavenly Father, this is your word. It's not mine. It's not ours. We didn't write it. And we cannot change it. It's because it's yours. And we are the ones who have the privilege right now to study from it, to be taught, to apply, and to live what we have in front of us. And even then, we are dependent upon you to teach us, to help us understand, to help us put it into practice and live it. And so, with all this, we recognize that we are so dependent upon you. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives right now. What you have done to give us the truth and to help us grow in it. And so we submit ourselves to you again as we open up this book, as we learn from it. Lord, indeed, you speak to us, we pray. And do your work on the inside that will obviously make its way to the outside and change the way we live. And I thank you for your faithfulness to us. In all this, we praise you in our Savior's name, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. All right, I'm not going to spend a lot of time with reintroduction of where we've been. This is a great study. It's a very important study that we keep on track. And the uh, website has our previous sermons. This is number nine already in our study of the book of Jude, and we're only into verse 4. And so, oh, I did, I did tell you, it took me a year to do this once before, didn't I? That was a Sunday school class that I worked on, and, and it was a lot of fun then, and I hope you enjoy it too. Um, I want to spend a little more time, though, where we started last week with the identity of those that we must look out for, as Jude's addressing in verse number 4, these certain persons who have snuck in unnoticed, he's talking about a group that's come into the church. 
All right? And as Jude is confronting this congregation on this point, I told you it was like he put up a wanted poster. Uh, this is who they are, and this is what they do. And you need to know their description so you can spot them. Because these individuals are a danger to the church. Understand what I'm saying here. They're a danger to the church. We already know that the world hates the believer. Do you know that? The world hates the believer in Jesus Christ because it hated Christ first. He warned us about that, didn't he? The world hates the light. It hates the truth because it lives in darkness. And it does not come to the truth. It doesn't want its deeds exposed. John chapter 3 will make that very clear. I'm not sugarcoating anything, am I? I don't intend to. That's the world we live in. And it's not easy being godly in an ungodly world. That's reality we're just going to have to understand. But you're not going to find that on a poster or on some fancy little sign that's going to hang in Hobby Lobby and you buy it for your house. It's not easy to be godly in an ungodly world. But it's a good note to put on your refrigerator or on your dashboard of your car, the mirror in your bathroom. It's a reminder because it's not easy. The Christian and the church are the enemies of darkness. The Christian and the church are enemies of darkness, and this world lies in darkness. But let, let me make a point. That is not what Jude is talking about. We know that's all reality. His greatest concern is not what's going on on the outside of the church. His concern is where? On the inside of the church. The danger that masquerades in and among us, as he says in verse number 4, they've settled into the church. They're in beside you. And folks, they didn't come to sit in the back pew. They have come to lead and to guide and to change the church according to their own desires. I'm just telling you the way Jude is alarmed as he's writing this letter. He says, I've got to address this. And if it was bad in his day, it's been 2,000 years to get it worse. We've got an overview of who these folks are last week. I'm going to set the microscope on them a little bit closer today as we look at the very real danger that I believe is in the church right now. This is not something we're waiting to happen. I think it's reality. Jude said in verse number 17, same book, just right across the page, maybe same page. I don't know how big your print is. I've got to get the biggest. So it's on the second page for me. Verse 17, but you, beloved, ought to remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, that they were saying to you, in the last time, there will be mockers following after their own ungodly lust. Are we in the last times? I do believe that with all my heart. Well, John believed it, and Jude believed it, and Peter believed it too. So if it was true for them, we're certainly in the last times. Now, he said that the apostles warned us of that. 
The reality is, yes, I did. Peter had written that exact same phrase. I believe he wrote before Jude, just simply because that's why Jude just copied that letter and said, didn't I say this before? And in 2 Peter 3.3, 3, Peter said this. Listen carefully. Look at verse 17 and watch. Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. Peter said that. Jude says, yep, the apostle said it. The mockers will come. That choice of word for mocker is only used two times in Scripture. It's here and in Peter. That particular word. Now, there's other words for mockers, but this one is kind of interesting. It means to jeer at something, to, to deride it. We use the word mock. It actually comes from the word for a little boy who is in the practice of teasing someone. Don't those little kids annoy you? Were you one of those teased or were you the teaser? Oh, don't confess, right? But you remember how that was. The little boys that could tease and tease and tease and tease. We were, at my neighborhood, we'd wait for the bus all the way down the street. We'd all walk down there. There were a good handful of us that rode the bus together. And they all knew that me and my brother went to church, and they didn't. And every single morning, they just wanted us to say a bad word. And they just taunted us with it all the time. Oh, come on, it, nobody's around, your parents won't hear it, all this stuff. They just wanted to hear us say a bad word. They teased us with it. And it wasn't nice. But it's what they wanted us to do, to be like them. And they teased us and teased us. I remember that. And they're not Facebook friends today, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> but you know that kind of person. The person who teased. That's the word that Peter and Jude both use here. But if you keep enhancing the concept of a mocker, you can go all the way back to Psalm 1, for example. And you probably know Psalm 1. It starts out, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. That's the word for a mocker. Interestingly, I, I like to take the Old Testament, look it up in the Greek terms of the Septuagint, just to get a feel for the word. And the word there means the seat of plagues, the seat of disease. And so, ooh, what an interesting picture. You want to sit there? No, the blessed man won't either. I said, okay, that would keep me from that department. Uh, to mock, if you play with the English word and just look it up in a dictionary, it has an opposite, and the opposite word is friendly. Isn't that interesting? Good-humored is the opposite of mock, because mocking is to treat something with contempt. It's to deride it. It's to abuse it verbally. And if you play with the word contempt, which I love playing with words, it is a disapproval tinged with disgust. But, ooh, this is getting pretty potent. A disdain, a feeling that a person or a thing is beneath one's dignity and unworthy of one's notice or respect. I could illustrate that very quickly. 
I could start with Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verse 6. But I am a worm, the writer says, and not a man. A reproach of men and despised by the people. All who see me sneer at me. They separate with the lip. They wag their heads saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him because he delights in him. What are they talking about? Do you know? The crucifixion. This is a prophetic passage, Psalm 22. It points to a cross and the agony that Christ is going to endure. And folks, I still can't get over it. He did it for us. But what he went through there, let let me just put this before you. At that place at the cross, if you go to Matthew 27, start in verse 39 and go through a paragraph or so, you're going to find three kinds of mockers right there at the foot of the cross. Psalm 22 warned it was going to happen. And in Matthew 27, 39, here's the first group. Those passing by. The crucifixion was up on a main road outside the city. People would walk by. And as they're walking by, they were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, well, save yourself if you are the Son of God. Come down from the cross. Those are the ones just passing by. There were those who were supposed to be examples of righteous living. We called them priests, chief priests, scribes, elders. These were the leaders that were spiritually in office but missing a whole lot. <laughs> and this is what they did at the cross, Matthew twenty-seven forty-one. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. And they mocked him. And then there were another group. You know where they were located? On the other crosses. Isn't this amazing? Even those on the cross that were being crucified with him. Psalm twenty-seven forty-four. The robbers who were crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. That's an incredible thing to walk through. But Peter was a witness of this. And when Peter writes, he says, just be aware in the last day, mockers will come. He knows what he's talking about. He's seen mockers before. And that's not a pretty term. Mockers will come. They will deny the Lord. Now, who of all the disciples understood that concept the best? Was it not Peter? Three times he denied the Lord. And we know he was crushed by his own cowardness. He refused to tell the truth. He lied before those people who asked him, aren't you one of his disciples? And how that must have stung his heart every time he had to write about that. A mocker, a denier, a deceiver. A liar. Peter looked in a mirror every single time he wrote those words. 
What did the Lord endure? Peter writes this. 1 Peter 2, 21, 22, 23. For you've been called for this purpose, Peter says, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example to follow in his steps. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, and that's a soft word for it, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. Jesus set us an example. And folks, if you think that reviling is a thing of the past, I just can't imagine what our future holds. Where a world is not going to like our Savior or the things that he taught us. And if you follow in his steps, they will notice. Let me just say this. Maybe you're even one of those who has practiced denial. Maybe you've been confronted as one who goes to church or as one who is a Christian and you have verbally said, nope, not me. Nope, I don't go there. Maybe you've avoided the church. You say, huh? I'm here today? No, but think about this. Maybe you've turned the conversation when they started talking about church to something else at the workplace. So, well, we're not supposed to talk about the church at work. Maybe you don't want to be identified as a believer in Christ in a world that hates that. Maybe you're full of doubt. Maybe you've been more concerned about your image in a particular crowd that you have practiced deceit too. Deceit is a lie, you know. But it's even more than that. Deceit is a deliberate attempt to distort or misrepresent or cover up the truth. I can say all that because I did that in high school. I was a secret disciple. I didn't want any of my friends to know it. I didn't want my high school to know it. I was always concerned about the way they'd take that. Because my high school was kind of tough. There were 600 people in my graduating class. It was uh, a, a steel mill environment where most of our parents worked at the mill. The language was pretty rough. All of my classmates are in prison now somewhere. That's what I say. That's what I say. I was scared to be a Christian in that world. I really was. I tell you the truth. I denied my Lord just like Peter did so many times. I'm ashamed of that. But folks, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Why? That we might die to sin and live unto righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. And Peter knew exactly what that means when he wrote it down in his book. We were changed because he took away our denying. And he took away our deceit. And he took away our sin so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. He changes us, doesn't he? He changes us. And Peter could write that passage and Jude could take it and write it as well. Because you know who Jude was? Do you know who he was? He was a brother of Jesus. Literally. His mother and father were Joseph and Mary. 
And he didn't understand it until later, after the resurrection. And Jude writes these words too. And these men could write them with their heads held straight up. Because it was no longer pride that had Peter. It was Christ who had Peter. There is a difference. There is a difference. Peter, though, knew what mocking looked like firsthand. He exposed it in all of his epistles. And Jude picks up his pen and he says, You know, Peter mentioned this was coming. And Jude says, It's here now. They have already crept in. Peter said, It's coming. Jude said, It's here. It's here. That's why he said, Remember the words that were spoken beforehand by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. In the last time, there will be mockers, he said. Let's examine who they are. You understand the term? When you get into verse number 4 of Jude, that's who they are. These certain people are mockers. Verse 18 will confirm that if you want to compare those. But these are the mockers who have crept in unnoticed. They were longhand beforehand, they were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation. They were ungodly persons who turn the grace of our God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord Jesus Christ. I want to deal with those two areas, but now it's one area, now it's half an area, of their identity. How they're going to employ themselves in the church. Now that they've crept in, what are they going to do? I want you to know so you can spot them and mark them. We really must know. The danger is huge, and when they creep in... It's not meant that they're going to announce it so the whole world and the whole church knows that they're here. So we have to be very discerning and know what we're looking for. Point number one that we start with today. They turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. We're going to work on that one. And when we get through with that one, we're going to hit point two. They deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Right? Now, simple points, so they're easy to remember. They deny, or they, they turn the grace of our God into licentiousness. In other words, like I do believe is a current trend in our theological world today, there is a deceit of grace. Sounds terrible, doesn't it? What do you mean a deceit of grace? It's a pretty good trick to do, to turn grace into a deceit of any kind. When I was young, my dad took me to a home where he was doing a project for a minute. I don't remember what it was, but it's usually carpentry work. And he had me go along with him to this man's house. And I think he did that for a certain reason, because the man had a son. The son was probably in his... 20s or 30s, I can't remember. I was a little kid at the time. But I know he was an older man. And his son was a magician. And while my dad was working on whatever it was he needed to work on, he wanted me to see this magician. And uh, I thought, this is going to be interesting. Because I went there and this man says, do you want to see a little magic? Being a kid, of course, you're serious. You've got to say, yeah, okay, show me something, something a few tricks. And he, he showed me something with cards, and I can't remember 
what those were, probably way over my head anyway. And then he handed me this little sponge rabbit, just a little thing. He says, now hold that in your hand. And he did something or other or whatever. And when I opened up my hand, there were two rabbits there. I didn't figure that out. I was pretty pretty easy to, to impress. I didn't know how that happened. It's only years later and you reach adulthood that you learn the word prestidigitation. Do you know that word? It's a big word. It means sleight of hand. It's a trick that you can do with your hand. It's not real magic. It just gives the appearance of magic. It's a trick. And it comes out with something spectacular in the end. It takes quite a trick to turn grace into licentiousness and convince everybody it's still grace. Licentiousness is a big word. Now, I am very much aware we have children among us, and children who write out a lot of what I say and make a cartoon of it and post it on my office door. (laughs) There's a lot of those there, and I like that very much. Licentiousness is a big word. If you're following the King James Version, you see the word lasciviousness, which helps a lot, doesn't it? Another big word. If you have the NIV, it says a license for immorality. The World English Bible just calls it indecency. And if you go to a very easy to read version, it says this. They've used the grace of our God in the wrong way to do sinful things. Now, even a child can tell you that sin is doing something wrong. We live in a world that doesn't understand that anymore. We look at these people and what they are doing, and what they have done in Jude is they've taken the blessed gift and word, grace. A word that we treasure, and they use it for something sinful. The other day, Pamela made a beautiful angel food cake. Love those cakes, don't you? Oh, it's wonderful. What would you think if I took that cake and used it to clean the mud off my boots? I'd be in trouble for number one. (laughs) Much worse. You know, that's the wrong thing to do with an angel food cake. (laughs) That thing's a masterpiece. Why would you drag it through the mud? Why would you do that with grace? Do you love that word? Do you know that word saved you? For by grace are you saved through faith. It's a precious, precious gift that we have received from our Lord. Ephesians 2, you have been saved through faith by grace. And that's not of yourself. It is a gift of God. It's not of works, so that no one can boast. There's several facts that's just pointed out in that phrase, and you've heard the phrase before. You probably even memorized Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. But the facts are right before you, as I just read that to you. Number one, you and I need to be saved. For by grace you are what? Saved. It's only by grace that we can be. See, to misuse grace to sin 
is contradictory of what it's designed to do. It's to save from sin, not to make sin. You see? Grace is given to us through faith. That's not credit on our side. We know that. Faith is not of oneself. It's of God. We are simply trusting what He has already said He has done. Grace was not our invention. Grace is not our initiative. Grace didn't even originate in our minds. As a matter of fact, we didn't even know it was there. Or how we could have gotten it. Because grace is a gift of God. It's a gift of God. It cannot be purchased, right? Okay, good. You do not exchange anything for it. It cannot be manipulated. It is not a trophy of accomplishment. In fact, it wasn't yours in the first place. It's the grace of God. Who does that belong to? Him. It's His grace. He's the one who gives it, and that's why we don't take any credit for it. It's not of ourselves. And that point is made on purpose. Because I hate to admit it, that's not what I believed for the longest time as I was growing up. I was taught in a church that was saturated with what we call technically Arminian doctrine. That salvation was my doing. And if I did something wrong, it would be my undoing as well. And that's what I was taught. You see, I defined grace by me and not by God. And when you treat it as if it's my grace, you use it how you want. But when you understand it and leave it for what it is, it is God's grace. Don't you dare use it for something wrong. It's His. It is His grace. I want you to understand that because look at what Jude said. Look at the words itself. They have turned the grace of our God into licentiousness. They have no business doing that. It's God's grace. Anytime you change God's grace into something sinful, it's wrong. And it doesn't matter what it is. Somebody wrote to Paul, boy, if you want to get Paul just all wired up, ask him, should we keep practicing grace so that, or sin so that grace can abound? Romans 6.1 what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? Paul's answer? No way! There's a paraphrase. By no means! No! May it never be! How shall we who have died to sin still live in it? How? The thought is abhorrent, folks. To turn grace into sin. It's a thing impossible from the very nature of what it is. It's impossible. From the very nature of the word grace, it's totally opposite to the work of Christ on the cross. It's absolute contrast to a holy God. There is no other way to cut this. The Christian life begins with death to sin. That's what it said. It begins with death to sin. And if grace has so changed us to be dead to sin, then Paul says, how can you still live in it? How can you still live in it? But we struggle there, don't we? 
We struggle there all the time. We say, Lord, I feel bad about this. Because you've given me this grace and it changed my life and yet I go on sinning. And there's shame in that. I understand that. But what if somebody says, but I'm going to keep on sinning so that grace could keep coming. During that cold week just recently, we needed to keep the dog in the house. I mean, we've got a place in the back of the house, a storage room near the garage, and, and we'll keep Pepper back there. That's our dog, the big black dog that barks at you if you drive up in the driveway. Well, she'd come in, and several times during the day, I needed to let her out to do her thing. And when she'd finish, I'd let her back in, and I always gave her a dog biscuit. We called it a cookie. You want a cookie? It was always cute to say that. And so we always had a cookie, and she looked forward to the cookies. And she'd stand by the back door and say, I've got to go. I've got to go. And we'd let her out. And she started this. She'd just go out six feet, run around the barbecue grill, come back in the house, and say, I want the cookie. <laughs> she only wanted out for the cookie. And we, we had to break with that, of course. But she had no other purpose for the whole act but for the treat. Paul says people use grace like cookies. They treat it like uh, whatever they're doing, they're just gonna they're gonna get grace for it. They figure that if God gave me grace as a sinner, the more I sin, the more He's gonna give me grace. There's nothing more foreign to the word grace than sin. Understand that? A debate goes on in theological circles today, and I'm literally telling you the truth about that whole point. The role of sanctification in the Christian life. They're trying to figure this out and allow you to live however you want as a believer. Grace is being trampled in this whole concept of what they're trying to do. I hate to say that, but Jude said, look out, they're coming. They're here. They're here. Even in our theological circles today. See, when I study things, and I look at them, and I just, I come up with simple things. I know that I've been saved by God's grace. That's not mine. It's His. I know that I've been set apart for a purpose, because He sanctified me. And if you're a believer, he sanctified you too. You've been set apart for a purpose. I know that I'm called to godly living, aren't you? Yes, absolutely. I know that I'm being transformed into the image of Christ. I'm supposed to cooperate with that. But he is going to accomplish this in the end. But every day he's working on my will. He's working on my deeds, my works, so that they look like what His should be in me. He's working on those things. He's renewing my mind by the Word of God. To renew your mind is to change it from what it was. And God's at work at that. So how can God's grace be turned into sinful behavior? How? Let's just look at what Jude tells us about these men. You ready? Put your seatbelts on. 
Verse 7. Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they, in the same way as these, indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh and exhibited as an example and undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, these who turned God's grace into licentiousness, practice the same thing. Hear it? The sin of homosexuality is a gross immorality in God's eyes. It's abominable to Him. I serve God. He said it. And He's never going to change His mind. Never. No matter what our world throws at us, no matter what our world endorses, no matter what it promotes, God has said it. And it's in His Word. And when they say, well, it's not in the Bible, take them to Jude for a minute. Just take them to this verse. And guess what? It's a sin that is infiltrating the church, Jude says. Yes, it is. <laughs> when the world endorses it and promotes it, we're not surprised. But when it arrives in the church, we should be alarmed. Jude says in the first century church, He's warning about those who do that. Then, 2,000 years ago, he's warning about those who did that. And they're using our beautiful word grace to cover for their behavior. God is not mocked, folks. That which a man sows, he also what? Reaps. What else are these men doing? Verse 12. These are the men who are hidden reaps in your love feast, he says. And they feast with you without Fear. They're like wild waves of the sea. They cast up their own shame like foam. And it's the Lord who will, according to verse 15, execute judgment upon all to convict all of the ungodly deeds of other, all the ungodly of their, all their ungodly deeds which they've done in an ungodly way and of the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. What's the dominant word? Ungodly. It's all over the verse. These are grumblers, verse 16, finding fault, following after their own lust. And then jump to verse 18. And they were saying to you in the last time there will be mockers following after, after their own ungodly lust. You can trace it. In the New Testament epistles, just about every time a false teacher is brought up, immorality is in the definition of their behavior. It's almost every time. Almost every time. It's the most common trait of a false teacher, believe it or not. You say, shouldn't it be their doctrine? Well, that's a problem. Shouldn't it be their leadership skills? Well, that's a problem. But look at their behavior. How often Scripture takes you there first. And why does it do that? Because with words, they twist it around and around and around and say that they're only enjoying the grace of God. That's what they say. And the point is, it's a deceit. It's a deceit. Now, like I told you, I've got a lot of notes yet. And the clock just told me something. 
Now you're going to go home scared to death. Let me say this. You go back, and I'm going to say it every single week, to verse number 17 and 18 and 19 and 20 and say, Oh, that's a good theological response to all that. And then you get to verse 20. It says, now this is what you do. Build yourselves up in the most holy faith. Build, 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 build. Don't stop. You need to be strong. You need it. I've got a lot of notes on that point yet to give you. And I'm going to bring it back that way next week, okay? I hate to say next week. But I have to. Unless you just... Are you okay with another hour? No? All right, I get it. Heavenly Father, we have to come to you right here. Say, Lord, your word is so black and white. And we like it. We love it that way. We see your word, grace, and we know the beauty of that word and what it's done for us. And it appalls us that anybody would use it in a sinful way. It appalls us. And then we get descriptions of that sin and we're just, we're floored that that is true. And that can happen in a church. Lord, what your word tells us to do is build ourselves up in this faith that you've given to us. We really can't afford not to. In our day and age, it's so important that we be strong. And we need to be strong. And I pray that you impress that upon us, each and every one of us. None of us are beyond our need to grow in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. We need that. Please, put it deep in our hearts as a passion, as that one thing that must happen. For if we are not growing, we are setting ourselves up for a fall. And we will fall, and we'll fall hard. Help us, we pray, Lord, to understand this, to take the warning seriously, and to build ourselves up in your word. We can start right now. We could do it this week. If it's time for a new habit, Lord, impress it upon us. It's time that we spend with you and your word. Bring us to understand that more fully today, we pray. And thank you so much for your love and your grace to us. Thank you for making it a beautiful thing. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.